This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado can't agree on what to do about suicide among kids. It's the leading cause of death for young people here. A rash of suicides last year included a 10-year-old in Aurora. With us now is someone dedicated to addressing this. Susan Marine is part of two statewide efforts to prevent suicide. And Susan, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I want to talk about some legislative fixes you've tried this year. But first, let's understand more uh, about the problem. What's the most startling finding you've seen as you've looked at the most recent surveys from Colorado schools? Well, every other year in Colorado, uh, we do a survey of uh, middle and high school kids. And in 2015, this survey showed that 17.5% of our high school students had actually made a plan and considered uh, dying of suicide. And almost 8% reported that they had actually attempted suicide. And among uh, gay, lesbian, transgendered uh, youth, the rate is 25% have actually attempted suicide. So there are many of our students who are deeply troubled. Are those numbers surprising to you? Can you put them into some context for us? For instance, 17.5% saying that they had gone forward with a a plan of some sort, uh, but not actually gone through with it. Um, Well, we know that only about uh, 30% of our youth who are seriously depressed get needed care. And in a state like Colorado, we can be quite sure that the rate of students getting care is much lower in urban, uh, rural areas of our state. Yeah, the rural numbers are fascinating to me. Uh, the rural youth suicide rate is twice the rate of students living in metro areas. Uh, Sedgwick and Custer counties, Sedgwick in particular near the Wyoming border, have very high rates. What do you think explains that difference between urban and rural? Well, just let me comment that the numbers uh, for Sedgwick and Custer, uh, their rates are highest when you look at suicide among people of all ages. That that's not uh, we don't have that data for youth in particular. Okay, but but with regard to uh, rural areas, uh, probably one of the major factors is that uh, there's a lack of access to mental health services. Sometimes these services are hours away from some of our small communities. Probably the stigma associated with having a mental illness uh, is a problem. And reaching out to help is not something that's easily done. Generally, in the western part of the United States, we have a attitude, a culture of being self-reliant, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And that's especially true in rural areas. Hmm. I want to it's say difficult d- also to sorry to reach out to get help because if you go to the local mental health center somebody can see your car and know that something is wrong with you and also um there tend to be maybe more guns in uh rural areas because of the hunting that is so much a part of that culture. 
Mm. And the idea there is if someone can recognize your car, that adds to the fear around the stigma. I'll just say to fill out the picture here, 69 young people committed suicide in the last year we have data available, 69. Uh, And that number, while startling, hides the larger numbers, as these surveys indicate, of of young people who have thought about it or uh, perhaps attempted suicide. So at, at a hearing at the Capitol this year, a student testified about what he sees in his school near Lakewood. Bertrand Lee is a senior at Devlin Junior Senior High School. Every morning when I walk into school, I pass a girl who, according to rumor, cuts herself. I eat lunch with one of my closest friends who recently started medication for his depression. I shared a classroom with a girl who attempted to commit suicide her sophomore year. What I've said today is not unique to me. This narrative could have come from the mouth of any teenager in Colorado. And so after the rash of suicides last year, several lawmakers said we have to do something. And you advocated for a bill to put more suicide prevention training in schools. I'll say that bill was defeated. Uh, But I'd like to talk about the role schools play. It's where most young people spend the bulk of their time. Some have even uh, followed through with suicide, you know, at school Do we know how much and what the quality is of what school districts are doing for suicide prevention right now? Well, there's a tremendous amount of variation among schools. Uh, In general, I think we can say that larger school districts that have, say, over uh, 10,000 students are much more likely to have programs and policies in place to address suicide. But in the state of Colorado, we have 259 school districts, and 110 of those are rural districts with less than a 1,000 students. And that means they have fewer staff, for sure, fewer, if any, mental health staff. And that speaks again to uh, why there might be such different rates between urban and rural areas. Is there even widespread agreement on why the suicide rate is high among young people? Is there is there some agreement you've come to? Well, you know, I think we'd have to say that social media is definitely part of the problem. Uh, kids are spending a tremendous amount of time on their phones, uh, you know, it interferes with direct communication with other people. You know, it interferes with the development of empathy. It can cause students to lose sleep, for instance. Uh, And in general, I think there's more stress and anxiety, generally speaking, among our student population. Life is certainly not getting more simple. It's getting much more complicated all the time. And these kids just have a lot of pressures to deal with. Would the social media access also extend to cyberbullying? Do you think that's a dimension? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we advocated was the development and the adoption of a comprehensive policy with regard to suicide prevention And the use of media and cyberbullying and bullying in general are one thing that uh, needs to be addressed within the school context. Would you point to anything else that might explain the youth suicide rate? Well, (laughs) it's, uh, 
very complicated. Any any one person who dies of suicide probably has several factors that are pushing them in that direction. It could be, you know, rejection by a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Uh, it could be economic pressures within the family, any number of things. Just to speak to the social media aspect of this, there was a study of a million teens that showed a correlation with three plus hours of social media use per day. And in in girls especially, depression correlated with that. So, so back to this bill you promoted, again, which was defeated. It would have urged school districts to prevent suicides, to have an action plan if there is a suicide, also to educate school staff. Let's talk about that that last point. What do you mean training school officials? Like, what, what are they looking for? What are they supposed to do if a student is suicidal? Well, certainly we expect mental health uh, staff in schools to do more. Uh, oftentimes they're very overloaded. Uh, counselors in schools often have a caseload of 400 students and... Right. That's really too many to provide much uh, intervention. Uh, We advocated uh, educating all teachers uh, about suicide so that they can recognize the signs and symptoms and that they know how to refer kids for help. What would I be looking out out for if I were a teacher? Just give me an example. Uh, well, the student might, for instance, be getting uh, more isolated, uh, being uh, less talkative in class. School performance could be uh, dropping. Uh, uh, even uh, talking about giving away some of their favorite uh, possessions and a number of things like that. The, the teacher might become aware that the student was not eating as much as usual or their sleep was impaired, so they could be sleepy in class. So that was one approach is, is to uh, help teachers recognize the signs. I understand one school district has gotten really direct in talking about suicide in, in Boulder Valley. Other students mm-hmm. called peer educators actually talk about suicide in classrooms. Right. Um, in Boulder, we have a program called Coley's Kids, and this program has been operating more than 12 years in our schools. And high school students are trained to go into classrooms and talk with the other kids about uh, the signs and symptoms of suicide and the importance of going, reaching out to uh, a teacher or another trusted adult. But the idea, I suppose, that if the message comes from another young person, it might be better received. As part of uh, this bill that uh, failed at the legislature, you also wanted to teach more life skills, social, emotional learning, and resiliency training. What does that mean? How, how do you teach a kid to be more resilient? Well, some of what, uh, by the way, this is not so far out. Uh, social, emotional learning is actually part of this state's uh, uh, health 
curriculum. So it's something that isn't a standard for the state already. Hmm. Uh, basically, resiliency means that you have the ability to bounce back after s- something bad happening to you. So we would be looking to train students to recognize their own emotions, communicate more directly and appropriately, uh, how to problem solve, how to cope with failures or rejection. So uh, that it doesn't feel like the end of the world, even if it may look like that. It sounds like these are skills to maybe change one's view, change one's thinking, and get out of that that despair place. Yes, precisely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting thing to learn in school. I'll say that the this bill to get schools to do more to prevent suicide was defeated by Republicans, largely because of this sentiment. Government is not the answer. That is Republican Senator Vicki Marble. She said that this bill would create a government bureaucracy, but no solutions. She did talk about the importance of schools giving kids interpersonal skills, getting them off their cell phones. She said they're getting their self-esteem now from likes on social media. The more problems we have in our schools, the more government we lay on it. And the more programs that we make our school educators responsible for. And the more we do this, the more I'm convinced we're wrong. I mean, I think about teachers who have 40 kids in their classes and a commensurate amount of grading and tests to administer. And this idea of asking them to have one more duty, be on the front lines in one more respect. Is that just too much? Well, um, let's put it this way. If you have a class and one of the students in your class has died of suicide, you're faced with a reality that you have to deal with. There is no way that you can avoid that. And in terms of accountability for school districts, I guess my position would be that this is an accountability that schools really can't escape if they have had one or more students who have died of suicide. And in fact, what this bill would have done would be to provide skills and training and resources to the teachers uh, and to work with students themselves so that they are better able to deal with this kind of loss. And by the way, part of the educational package would be to educate parents, because parents, as you might imagine, are extremely concerned about this problem. Hmm. And outside of governments, we are starting to see coalitions forming in places like Mesa County, where there have been clusters of youth suicides. And these coalitions include parents, law enforcement, churches, schools. Uh, Very briefly before we go, Susan Marine, uh, who's chair at the Suicide Prevention Coalition of Colorado, um, have you seen any successes in recent years, changes in Colorado you think can make a difference, will make a difference to bring down the number of young people who are uh, going through suicide? Yes, well, let me just mention one school district, Uh, It's Academy 20, which is on the north side of Colorado Springs. And 
over a few years' time, they had 28 suicides. And they have instituted an extremely uh, comprehensive approach to this problem. And it involves not only uh, educating the students, uh, educating the staff, and also working in partnership with the community because we know that schools are just part of the solution. So they have developed a coalition in Colorado Springs as well. And so far this year, they have not had any youth suicides. That is so that I think is this, Yeah, I think that with a comprehensive approach, we can make a difference. I appreciate your time. That's Susan Marine, Advocacy Chair at the Suicide Prevention Coalition of Colorado. She also sits on the State Suicide Prevention Commission. It's been six months since Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. Not long after the storm, Denver chef Jesse Vega traveled there and over three days helped serve more than 3,000 meals. We caught up with Vega at Candela Latin Kitchen, where he's executive chef. He made us an island favorite, mofongo. It's usually served with meat, though Vega has a vegan option. It starts with plantains, fried, mashed, and then molded into a tight ball. Puerto Rico, yo nunca dejaré de amarte. This is one of those dishes that can kind of change household to household depending on who's making it. So in my house, you know, my mom learned from my grandmother. And what my grandmother would do is fry these green plantains. And she would sauce it with a salsa criolla, which is not super typical, but it's what I grew up eating. It's tomato sauce with white wine, garlic, red and green bell peppers, onions, cumin, cilantro. So I'm just going to start off with a little bit of garlic. Then I'm going to hit it with a little bit of white wine. I'm not looking for too much color, but I just kind of want to get the garlic a little translucent. And now we have the sauce made here. As we're letting this ride out and kind of come up and cook some of the wine out of it, we're going to add some cilantro and parsley to finish. Now I'm going to start smashing the green plantains or the plantains. So we're taking these plantains out of the fryer. So here we use, um, English would be a mortar and pestle. You know, in Puerto Rico we call it a pilon. So the pilon is what we use to smash all the fried plantains. It's not supposed to be super pureed or chunky. It's kind of a little like nice balance of both. And uh, you only get that by smashing it by hand. So when you see us at the end of a Saturday night, we look like Popeye. So we're just like all night just doing like 20, 30 of these things. I don't know the best way to describe the consistency you're looking for, except for like almost like Play-Doh. And that way you can kind of mold it. So I'm going to go ahead and plate this for you guys. Just have the bowl here where we're going to place the ball of the smashed plantains, the mofongo. So that way it can catch a lot of the sauce. I'm just going to pour the salsa criolla right over the top. And then we're just going to top it with some shaved scallions here at the restaurant. My grandma didn't shave these scallions growing up, but we do. (laughs) And Chef Vega is with me in the studio now, part of our culinary tour of Colorado. We meet chefs across the state and hear the stories behind their food. 
We are calling this Five Stars to Food Trucks, and welcome to the program, Chef. Good morning. Thank you. I had mofongo a while back in New York, and I think it was made of yucca, not right. plantains. Sure. Yeah, they have uh, different various mofongos. It could be with yucca or even with uh, the green plantain sweet and yucca, which is like a three-fungo. So it has like all three mashed together. A three-fungo. Yeah. So there's uh, a real range of mofongo. I also tried yours, and I appreciated um, not only that it was delicious, but that it was filling. Like I didn't have to have a lot to feel like I'd had a full meal. Sure. It's definitely pretty substantial, which can kind of help when you're uh, raising a family and trying to feed everybody and keep them full all day, you know. Interesting. Your father's side of the family is Puerto Rican, and you learned Puerto Rican cooking from your dad's mother. Uh, Your maternal grandmother, also a great cook, focused on more traditional American food, mainland food, I suppose, uh, to put that more precisely. How is your cooking a reflection of that combination? Well, I mean, just visiting, you know, each household, I mean... It was a win-win for me. I mean, I get the best of both worlds. You know, you're eating your Italian-American or whatever the case may be with whatever my grandmother was cooking on my mother's side. But at the same time, you had this, like, beautiful, bright, you know, Puerto Rican food on the other side. So, you know, there was always questions, you know, like, what is anything? Like, you know, I just asked a lot of different questions depending on where I was eating. Did you find that there was a lot of room for fusion? Um... In terms of what? In terms, in terms of myself? or Well, in the... terms of blending sort of both sides of your family into one dish, you know? Is there a place for pasta and mofongo? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, for me, there is. I don't know if I'd fuse them, but I'd definitely eat them next to each other. Okay. And, you know, growing up in uh, the church in Queens, New York, that I lived in Queens Tabernacle, we'd have these beautiful potlucks and it would be the same thing. So you'd have people from Trinidad and Barbados and Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, so you're eating like curry goat and lasagna and empanadas on the same plate, but it's like... Why not? It's all delicious in its own right. So Curried goat and lasagna side by side. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. You lived in Puerto Rico for about a year when you were in your 20s. Yeah. But take me back to your most recent visit there in November of last year. Maria had hit the island on September 20th. What do you remember most from that trip? Like, what's the image you can't get out of your head? Well, I mean, probably the children. You know, I know that... Uh, the hurricane hit really hard, and it was still devastated when we visited, and that was with Chef Stabodinkin, which is, you know, a friend of mine who reached out and kind of organized this group of chefs that are all Puerto Rican all throughout the country, and just going out there and feeding everybody, and, you know, as hard as it was to to see how devastated the island was, at the same time, it was kind of uplifting to see the spirits of the children, you know, still playing, still laughing, still going about their day, and even though it's a struggle, you know, they still kept their, you know, their spirits up. It sounds like they found room for joy in a place that could be pretty joyless. At the moment, yes. Yeah. I mean, Puerto Rico is quite the opposite of joyless before the hurricane, but I can understand, you know, with the devastation on the island. You, know. you were with, uh, indeed, eight other chefs from the mainland that raised money to take food and supplies to areas in Puerto Rico hit especially hard. Correct. Uh, you visited three towns in three days and I understand the night you arrived, you actually slept on the floor of a restaurant. Correct. Which is now open and running and beautiful. So oh, no, it wasn't nice. then. It, in other words, it, it, could, it could then. serve no, as yeah. a shelter. Yeah, it did. It did at the time. And I, it actually just opened up last week, And um, it, which is beautiful. It's so funny to see the restaurant looking gorgeous and not just yeah, an empty space that we were sleeping in. So, so you've kept crazy. in touch to be able to get that kind of update. 
yeah, I'm I'm friends with the with Bernice, who is the manager there, and you know we worked together in Puerto Rico when I lived there. So she helped she helped us out, you know, organizing the trip. So tell us more about the people you were serving. Had they lost their homes? Yeah, there was there was a lot of hardships, and uh, you know some people have lost homes. Some people have had to move pretty much everything into one specific room while everything is covered in tarps. Um, unfortunately, that's still the case for a lot of homes out there in Puerto Rico. Mm. Um, a lot of people have tarps for roofs. They're still without electricity. But, you know, we, we had a very short window of time to cook everything and get the meals out because we were doing them by foot. Or it had to be done, you know, before sundown because we were driving an hour and a half, two hours into the island to where we were staying. I see. So, this wasn't just a question of folks coming to you and getting food. No, but we were going to them. Going yeah. to them. So that was the difficult part. When the sun goes down and we're driving in pitch blackness, you don't know which streets are flooded, which are the, the potholes, if there's trees across the roads, you know. So we really had a small window of, like, getting it all done and leaving just in time for the sun to start setting so we can get home on time. What was the reaction of folks? What did their faces look like when I don't just randomly someone shows up with a nice dish of food? Uh, it's a very, I mean, they were very, you know, uh, they were excited to have a hot meal. Some, some people we were talking to have not had a hot meal since the hurricane. So that's pretty crazy. I can't imagine Big deal. going, you know, over a month without even one hot meal. You know, I don't understand it. I know that, you know, our efforts didn't completely, you know, heal everything that's going on the island. But at the very least, if somebody can get a hot meal, you know, it's it's great to do. I, I can imagine that feeling of, oh, my gosh, I can do a little, but there's so much need. I understand that at one point you were cooking on a beach with grills. And when you were cooking, police showed up. You were worried that they'd Shut you down because you didn't have a permit. But that, that is well, not it's, how that ended. It's an appropriate um, assumption, especially coming from New York, to be honest. But, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you, you know, you set up an open fire in the parking lot of a Boys and Girls Club and start grilling food and everybody's out there with their shirts off cooking, you, you know, you'd expect. But instead they came and said thank you. And that was really humbling, you know, so. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Jesse, and for sharing your mofongo with sure. us. You've also shared a recipe, which we'll put at CPR.org. Nice Thanks to meet you. Thanks for having me. It's Jesse Vega, executive chef at Candela Latin Kitchen in Denver. We went there to watch him prepare the Puerto Rican dish mofongo. And uh, indeed, you'll find a recipe at CPR.org. Vega also talked about his visit to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, which struck six months ago. Maybe your workplace sets goals for you. More and more, that includes health goals, like losing weight, kicking cigarettes. But there's sharp debate over what kind of programs work best. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, companies are exploring new ways to get workers healthy by getting everyone in the company involved. It's mid-morning at the Boulder Company Camp Minder, a web-based camp management company. Employee Chris Masella stops by the break room, where there are colorful boxes full of fresh fruits and veggies, bananas, grapes, peppers. He picks out an apple. Yeah, sure, I still eat the peanut M&Ms from time to time, but having that, knowing that I could get an apple and, you know, have that in the morning instead, it's really beneficial. Masella's employer hires a Denver company called Fruit Revival to make regular deliveries of healthy snacks. Melissa Edison Barnes says business is brisk, and she's seeing some companies replace traditional wellness programs. 
they haven't worked very well, and they are incredibly expensive. There's all the the administrative work, all the tracking, and then a lot of people just even though their company is paying for it, they don't participate because they they just resent it. The cost of a 30 serving box of fresh seasonal fruit is thirty nine dollars. The CEO of Campminder, the company receiving today's delivery, is Dan Konisberg. He says the move is a no-brainer and part of a larger effort. Philosophically, wellness for us is part of a much larger equation, which includes the way that people feel about their work. Konigsberg wants his employees to get meaning out of their work and feel they're part of a community that cares about their well-being. To me, like that's what wellness is is having a lifestyle where you love what you do for work and you have flexibility and you're eating well and you're taking care of yourself in every way. Getting workers to take care of themselves is a big task. A study of 17,000 Colorado employees found on average they have more than three chronic health conditions like diabetes and hypertension. Most are overweight or obese. All that impacts sick days, productivity, and health costs, and that challenge is inspiring companies to change. So we've seen a huge evolution just in the last five years. That's Lily Tenney, the co-founder of the Colorado nonprofit HealthLinks. It collaborates with employers on workplace health. She says a new generation of wellness programs aims to get every employee involved, not just the most motivated ones who are already healthy. The conversation has gone from certain activities, so your company doing a biggest loser challenge to really talking about having health be personal. A recent randomized controlled study of nearly 5,000 employees in Illinois found minimal benefits from a workplace wellness program in its first year. Researcher David Molitor says in terms of costs, sick days, productivity, or gym visits, the results just weren't there. It just turns out that the evidence that exists on on what workplace wellness programs do is is mixed and it's pretty limited. Back at the Boulder Company, Campminder, wellness is about more than just healthy snacks. Each day, there's a yoga break. Three, two, one. And on his computer, employee Mason Meyer shows off a wellness savings account. And we can use that for things like gym memberships, even like purchasing. I've got a colleague who purchases a new pair of shoes every so often. You can use it on ski passes. Each month, Meyer's company kicks in a $25 wellness benefit. That can go to a gym membership or a bike or maybe a new pair of skis. I really like it. It's a great benefit. Um, it encourages wellness. I've actually never skied before, and so having this credit makes something like that more accessible. Meyer has also begun taking advantage of another thing his workplace offers, a meditation room, and helps him deal with stress. Annalise Brown is the company's director of talent and culture, the equivalent of an HR director. She says the company even lets employees bring dogs to work. It's all about creating a positive environment. What people want really is flexibility and to define wellness on their own terms. And that might be a good motto to sum up Workplace Wellness 2.0, where the workers, with the help of their employer, decide to take wellness into their own hands. I'm John Daly, CPR News. It's been over two weeks since the state legislature expelled its first member in over a century. Former Representative Steve Lebsock lost his job for sexual harassment. Complaints against other lawmakers are still pending. These cases have brought attention to a group that isn't used to the limelight, legislative aides and interns. 
As CPR's Sam Brash reports, many say they're the capital's most vulnerable workforce. Hours before she voted to expel former Representative Steve Lebsack, Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod took the mic on the House floor. She told lawmakers about her first year as a legislative aide. She was 22, and she took enormous pride in her position at the state capitol. So I was really, really, really excited when the chief of staff asked me to come into his office and talk about my future. He took Herod to a window overlooking the mountains. And then he stepped closer. He put his face up to mine and he asked for a kiss. Herod laughed it off, but the behavior didn't stop. He would bump into her. He would ask if she could tell how he felt. This all happened. And still, I didn't come forward. I didn't say anything. I didn't know there was a process. I thought this was just the way it was. The staffer was fired after Herod corroborated similar stories from another woman. Looking back at the episode today, she thinks it shows why so many young workers at the Capitol stay silent about harassment. As an aide or intern, I think you feel pretty powerless to speak up and speak out against any type of sexual harassment that you feel in this building, but it exists. In recent months, former aides and interns have levied a slew of harassment complaints against sitting lawmakers. But notably, none of those allegations come from current aides or interns. Cassie Tanner, a former aide and one of Lebsock's accusers, thinks she knows why. These are, in most instances, kids in their 20s. This is their passion. They want a career. And they know it would be career suicide for them to speak up. Tanner only told her story after leaving Colorado politics entirely. She now runs Spay Today, a nonprofit spay and neuter clinic in Lakewood. Since I traded in, you know, politics for puppies and kittens, it really gave me the freedom to be able to come forward. Tanner says for aides and interns to bring allegations, they need to know it won't dash their political hopes. She also wants better protections for them under the Capitol's sexual harassment policy. Maitha Gudavali is with the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault, which is pushing for the same thing. If you're just responding to allegations of sexual harassment, it's a good start. But if you're not addressing the underlying cause of why these things are occurring, then you're still going to see sexual harassment. Gudavali says that cause is a gap in power. Both aides and interns hold temporary positions at the state capitol. Interns are unpaid and often need to complete their tenure for college credit. Aides are paid, but they rely on lawmakers for career advancement. It's easy to exploit that power. That is what sexual harassment is about. So at the core of a policy, you need to address the power differential. Toward that end, Gudavali's group has come up with a list of potential changes to the Capitol's harassment policy. One proposal is to grant accusers anonymity. Under the current policy, the subject of a complaint gets the name of their accuser. Another possibility is a ban on romantic relationships between lawmakers and interns. And a third idea is just to make the policy itself more accessible. For example, Missouri has a website and a database specifically designed for legislative interns and aides in which they can access sexual harassment policies and resources. All those changes are on the table. In January, legislative leaders hired Investigations Law Group, a Denver firm, to gather recommendations for the workplace harassment policy. Senate President Kevin Grantham is the legislature's top Republican, but he declined to say what he wants modified until that review is complete. Honestly, we're in the middle of this still, so we're still learning what kind of process we have, some of the failures of the process, and some of the the good things about the process, if there are any. 
that reports due back early April. Until then, aides and interns will have to wait and rely on the current process. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. As he reported there, Sam ran into a problem. Legislative rules don't actually allow aides and interns to talk to reporters. And Sam is here to tell us more about that. Welcome back to the show. Always glad to be here. It makes sense to me that aides and interns couldn't speak about policy. I mean, I'm sure lawmakers and Capitol spokespeople want to control their message, but uh, you're saying they can't talk to the press at all. Yeah, that's right. Uh, The House and the Senate each have a handbook for aides, interns, and volunteers, and they each say that aides, interns, and volunteers can't grant interviews to the media. The House policy even says they should, quote, be guarded around journalists. Um, The rules are pretty clear. Aides can't talk to someone like me about policy. They can't talk to someone like me about their personal experience experiences. They can't talk to someone like me at all. Is this a rule that was meant to be broken? Are are people following this? Uh, Yeah, yes and no. Um, Since February, I've been working to interview aides and interns, and lawmakers have split on how they interpret these rules and and whether I can talk to their staff. Uh, Democrats in the House and some in the Senate have said aides and interns are free to share their own thoughts and experiences so long as they aren't speaking for their lawmaker. Um, Most but not all Republicans say the rules clearly forbid media contact of any kind. Different interpretations, largely along party lines. Do you know if any other journalists have run into this problem, Sam? Uh, other journalists I know have also been working to interview aides and interns about harassment. And over the last few months, that prompted a pair of emails from Senate Secretary Effie Amin. She's the uh, top secret. She's the top staffer in the Senate, and that's a nonpartisan staff. And she asked her staff to remind aides and interns about those rules. As far as you know, have any aides or interns been punished for speaking to the media this session? Uh, no, I'm not aware of anyone who's been punished. Okay. Despite this rule, have you been able to interview? Any current aides or interns? I did. I spoke to a number of Democratic aides with permission of their lawmakers. Uh, 25-year-old Rachel Carlson agreed to be quoted on the record. She was one of the few who did. And she's an aide to Representative Faith Winter. It seems important to note that Winter was the first to formally accuse former Representative Steve Lebsack of harassment. He was expelled, of course, earlier this month over the complaints from her and other women. So I imagine Winter might have a reason to encourage her aide to talk about the issue. Yeah, exactly. And Carlson said Lebsack's expulsion was a heartening sign for aides and interns that showed them that there are consequences in some harassment cases. Although it is a start with what we're doing now and with the harassment trainings and with everybody speaking out about this, I know a lot of people would still be worried about coming forward. And on that front, Carlson says the rules on media contact aren't helping. So if A's and interns are being told not to talk to the media, not to talk to the press, it's basically reiterating that we don't have a voice. And on the other hand, another aide I spoke with didn't want to be named or quoted uh, on the record. She said she had the okay from her lawmaker, too, to do that. Mm. And she said she didn't want to attach herself to the ongoing drama around harassment at the Capitol. She didn't want to make that her issue. So besides these rules, I really want to note that aides and interns have their own reasons for being cautious around the media. What do legislative leaders say about the rules? So Speaker of the House Crisanta Duran is Colorado's top Democratic lawmaker. And through a spokesperson, she said that aides and interns should be free to talk about their personal experiences. Senate President Kevin Crantham is the top Republican. He said he can understand why an aide or an intern might turn to the press or he, if he or she saw, like, no action on a formal harassment complaint. But that hasn't happened to his knowledge. So he, so he says aides and interns uh, have taken an oath to abide by Senate rules, and, and they should abide by them. 
And so if we need to address the rules uh, because they're not just, then we will deal with that. But uh, the rules are what they are right now. And so that's what we're trying to live by. Just briefly, what about free speech? Is this a First Amendment issue at all? Yeah, absolutely. Steve Zansberg is a media lawyer in Denver. I talked to him about this. And he says governments do have the ability to set reasonable limits on employee speech, both inside and outside the workplace. That makes sense. Government workers often have to deal with sensitive information. But a blanket prohibition on employees' free speech, ones that one that includes their ability to talk about their workplace. He says that's an unconstitutional restriction on free speech. So capital aides and interns should know you have a strong legal case if they do talk to the press. And if they want to talk, my office is on the south side of the Capitol basement. Naturally, you're interested in their stories and sharing them with us. Thanks for sharing this with us, Sam. Thank you, Ryan. Sam Brash covers the Capitol for CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. A new center dedicated to women's history in Colorado opens tomorrow. It tells the story of women who fought to get the vote in the 1800s, who helped put Mesa Verde National Park on the map. It features women who climb mountains, make art, and work behind the scenes, including as housekeepers. Jillian Allison directs the new Center for Colorado Women's History in Denver. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. And I want to start with Ellis Meredith, a powerful force in making Colorado the second state in the nation to give women the vote. Uh, I think most of us, though, have not heard of her. Tell us more about Ellis Meredith. Uh, She was a journalist, and uh, she was interested in going beyond the vote. She saw that not as the starting point or as the end point, but the starting point uh, for women. She was interested in taking Colorado's story and taking it to the nation. She testified and wrote about the experience of Colorado women and their opportunities to vote and wanted to take that opportunity and spread it to women across the the country. I imagine that other places might have been wary of giving women the vote, and she saw it as her role to say the sky didn't fall and <laughs> things might have even gotten a little better. Absolutely. Um, people were saying, are women even voting? Are they coming out? And she was showing them that women in Colorado were voting at higher rates than men in some areas. Oh, wow. um, women um, and men were saying, we don't have time for that. Um, and she thought, It's not a luxury that all women have to say it's optional to vote. Um, They may have struggles in their lives that they're going to take the time for. She's known sometimes as the Susan B. Anthony of Colorado. Yes. um, And she met Susan B. Anthony at the um, 1893 World's Fair. um, And that's the same year that women in Colorado got the right to vote, um, long before women across the nation. Do you think that she was instrumental in convincing other places around the country to roll forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is Ellis Meredith. Why create a center for women's history? And and why now? Well, we are so excited to have the opportunity to do this now. Um, We saw in some of the program that we were doing at the Byers Evans House, which is the home of the Center for Colorado Women's History, that stories about women were really resonating with people. Um, Once we started to introduce programs about Colorado women, um, people were coming back um, and visiting more often. And these were stories that people wanted to hear and see. And so we're looking for more opportunities to do that. And this is not just women sort of in the history books, but those 
those working today. You'd like to tell a modern story as well, a contemporary story. Yes, absolutely. We're looking to um, engage people in a conversation and bring those stories from the past into the present. So the center is housed in the Byers Evans House Museum. It's an 1800s mansion furnished with ornate decor that belonged to one of Denver's wealthiest families a century ago. And there are items used by some of the women on the house staff, like a hand-cranked vacuum cleaner. It sounds a lot like indigestion. (laughs) I don't think I knew before this that there were hand-cranked vacuums, but of course there would have to be before the onslaught of electricity in homes. Tell us about the housekeeper who used that vacuum, what she would have done to operate that appliance, because her story is one you're telling. Yes. So Esther Allspach was uh, the maid sort of in the World War One era. And with that vacuum, uh, you have a set of handles. So one is stationary and the other you pull out. Okay. And when you pull out, it uh, raises up and actually creates the vacuum. Creates the vacuum effect, yes. Yes, yes. And so that's the sound that you're hearing. The louder sound is the suction of the vacuum, and then I'm pressing it back in when the quieter sound happens. Why did you want to tell that story and her story? Well, it's important to um, talk about, you know, the women who were at the big fancy dining room table, but also the women who were behind the scenes, because without all of those women, um, you know, this history wouldn't have been made and possible. And I think it's important that we tell stories that everyone can see themselves in. Um, Esther's family has come back and told us um, stories about her time there. Um, So it was clearly important to them, and it's important to the visitors that come see us as well. Okay, we're talking about the new Center for Colorado Women's History in Denver. And before we let you go, how about one more story about the doctor who was the first woman to lead Denver General Hospital, what we now know as as Denver Health. Dr. Rose Kidbeer was working in um, Durango as a young mother of children. She was a widow, and she received a letter from her father um, when the Spanish War started. He was lamenting the fact that it was the first war that their family wasn't going to be able to serve in because he was too old, her children were too young, and she took that as a call to action. Huh. So she convinced the head of the armed forces in San Francisco to send her. Um, she wanted to go as a doctor, and he refused. So she went as a nurse, um, and she was appalled by the food that the soldiers I just want to be clear. She, she had been trained as a doctor. She, yes, she but, was a doctor. But they said, I'm sorry, you can only go as a nurse. That's the women's place. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's right. the only role you can serve as, as, as a nurse. So she went um, and she she saw this food that they were getting served that was deteriorating their health. It was disgusting. So she served the officers the worst, most foul food she could find so that they would make a change. Okay. <laughs> And then she came back to Denver and was was the head of Denver General Hospital. I see. And I imagine the quality of the food changed rather quickly. Yes. Once the officers (laughs) were forced to eat the gruel. Yes. Okay. Are there just lots of other stories you want to tell? And I imagine it's just endless. It is. And there are some that, you know, I'm sure we don't even know about yet, which is why we want to involve people in the conversation, Um, hear stories that, you know, maybe we don't know about, hidden stories, unknown histories. Yeah. And it can be people who may be in the history books. And as you say, who may have been serving those who appear in the history books. Jillian, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. She's Jillian Allison and directs the new Center 
for Colorado Women's History in Denver. It opens tomorrow, as we said, in the Byers Evans House Museum in Denver. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. And the newsroom's on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Public Radio.